Welcome to Beyond Generations, a journey of a Japanese student in Seattle, discovering what happened to Japanese American people in Seattle during World War II, and how people have been trying to acknowledge, understand, and learn from it, and figure out how to connect it to the future. I am your host, Monica. Do you know there is a Japanese American student mural near the University of Washington campus? The centerpiece of the mural is a black and white photo of some 100 Asian American students taken in the autumn of 1941 at the University of Washington campus. Among them were many Japanese American students. A few months after the photo was taken, the war between the United States and Japan started, and these Japanese American students were taken to the wartime incarceration camps, just like other Japanese Americans were. But it seems that we do not know about their experiences as much as we should. Why do we not know? Why did they not tell us? And why did we not ask? This episode is about two stories around this Japanese American student mural. One about a student in the mural photo who went to the incarceration camp and to the European theater to fight for America during World War II and told his post war born son to be as American as he can be. The other about an artist who uses public art. As a means to bring people's attention to injustice that Japanese American people experienced during World War II, including her own family. First, let's meet the artist. My name is Erin Shigaki, and I'm an artist and an activist, and I am Yonsei, which means fourth generation Japanese American. And I was born and raised here in Seattle. Um, on Coast Salish land, and、um, this is where I work, live, and work now, too. Erin Shigaki uses public art like the mural to tell stories about wartime experiences that the Japanese American community, her community, went through. It was when she was in the eighth grade in school that she first asked about the incarceration of Japanese Americans to her Nisei. The second generation Japanese American grandmother, and later other elder members in her family. This is a huge part of American history, but Erin says she barely learned about it in school. You know, when I went into my Washington State history book, there was like a paragraph about it. And, you know, that when you're a kid, you kind of slowly realize, like, oh, that history. Was not that long ago. Wait a second. That's my family went through that. But when I started realizing that, I I just had to ask. And, I, and my mom encouraged it too. She said, I think, you know, I think they'll talk. Erin's mural was installed in July 2021. On the wall of one of the buildings on a street in New District, which students fondly called the Ave. 
The street is always busy with University of Washington students rushing to the campus or hanging out with friends looking for a place to eat. The mural is about 10 feet high and 30 feet wide and takes up a whole wall of a building facing its parking lot. It is hard to miss. The mural is huge and there is a striking contrast between the black and white photo in the center and the bold design in vibrant colors surrounding it. So the, the piece is centered around.、Um, A photograph that we think is some kind of gathering of Asian American students on the campus. There's, you know, a hundred or more of them. We know that there are a lot of Japanese Americans in the photo because of、uh, where it came from and、um, the fact that people recognize faces in the photo as well. And then the, the text. Says、um, respect, beloved community. And I also have、uh, painted a number of flowers that are、um, evocative and representative of many Asian cultures. And then、um, some broad, bright、uh, curves and strokes that's That sort of signify movement and life, as well as、um, some cloud forms that I often use to, to also signify renewal and sacred spaces. The photo in the mural was taken in the autumn of 1941 in front of the iconic Suzalo Library on the university campus, which people sometimes call Harry Potter Library. Everyone in the photo is dressed up for the occasion, looking cool and proud, with a beaming smile. The photo was taken just a few months before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December the same year, which marked the start of the war between the United States and Japan in the Pacific. Many of these Japanese American students were sent to the incarceration camps during the war because they had Japanese ancestry. In this mural, Erin decided to tell a story about the Japanese American students at the University of Washington who had to leave the university for the incarceration camps during World War II because of the infamous evacuation order. So, I thought it would just be perfect, especially in this moment, you know, that where we were experiencing、um, yet another wave of, of anti Asian violence and rhetoric.、Um, and the fact that the University of Washington is so Asian right now, you know, the, the student population, I, I decided to, to pitch it just for. All of the ways that this story could be resonant and it could, people could learn from it too. To Erin, stories about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during the war have always been close to her heart personally. Her family was heavily affected by the incarceration. All of her grandparents were incarcerated during the war in the Camp Minidoka in Idaho. One of the 10 incarceration camps set up in seven states across the United States. Her father was born there in the Camp Minidoka, 
and her mom's parents were matched and married there in the camp. Her great uncle was one of some 440 Japanese American students at the University of Washington who had to leave the university due to the evacuation order. Well, I, I found my way into the arts through graphic design, and that's what I did in New York for a long time, as well as taught a little bit of art to kids. It wasn't until I moved back to Seattle. Um, a handful of years ago, that I had the opportunity to、um, look into public art in particular.、Um, there was this great training that the city offered a public art boot camp. And then also finding my way back to the Nikkei community here.、Um, I don't know, it just really opened something up in me, you know, this desire that I had always had to. Somehow work more deeply with the stories, you know, that I was really lucky some of my family members told me when I was younger.、Um, and so then, you know, being back in Seattle and being in the community meant、um, doing work with the Minidoka Pilgrimage Planning Committee、um, and then. Joining with Sudu for Solidarity, which is a direct action group of Japanese Americans,、um, abolitionist group.、Um, so everything kind of just you know, started moving together.、Uh, and the work that I do is really deeply informed by the organizing that we're doing. After the first interview with her grandmother when she was in the eighth grade, Erin heard more stories about the incarceration from elders in her family growing up. Those stories have continued to inform and inspire her work that she does today. Well, you know, they were very matter of fact about sort of the daily existence. You know, they talked about the hardships of it, the weather and the, and the bad food.、Um, They didn't go very emotional, you know, emotionally deep in the storytelling. Of course, those interviews that I did with my grandmothers, I was young, you know, the first time, eighth grade.、Um, but even in later interviews, it's, you know, there was still a little bit of, of protective, protectiveness that they, that they were giving off. No one was bitter about it. Like, that's not what they wanted to tell me. They, they, wanted, they wanted to give me the information so that we could move forward.、Um, so, I, I really appreciated that about my family that they were, had, you know, they just had, they held out hope for the rest of us. That were yet to come. Her grandmothers told her about their wartime experiences much more to her than to her parents. Erin thinks that it is very common that Erin's parents' generation, the third generation of Japanese Americans, the Sansei, did not hear much about the experiences of incarceration from their parents' generation, the Nisei, the second generation. The Sansei generation was skipped in a way. 
There was a sense of shame and grief among those who went to the camps even after they fought for the redress and reparations in the 1970s and 80s. It made it very hard for the Issei's, the first generation, and Nisei's to talk about their wartime experiences. Yeah, you know, and then and when my parents were growing up, I think, I think you just didn't. I think that was, you know, it would be very bold to ask about this difficult thing, you know, that you knew had happened. It took, you know, it took families so long to just get back on their feet, too. So why, why dredge up the past? That is exactly the way Harry Hiroshi Eguchi took to deal with his life after the war, after the camp, to move forward in life. So that, that was their focus, not the past. It was always the future. Says Mike Eguchi, son of Harry Hiroshi Eguchi. He is the owner of the photo that Erin, the mural artist, used for her mural in U District. Mike is Sansei, living in Seattle. His father, Harry Nisei, is in the group photo that Erin used in her U District mural. He was also one of the former Japanese American students of 1941 and 1942 at the University of Washington who were forced out from the university because of the evacuation order. You can find his name in the list of some 440 names of the University of Washington Japanese American students of 1941 and 1942 that Erin placed next to her mural to memorialize their names, to show a sense of gravity of what happened to each and every student, as well as to the University of Washington community. Mike recalls that his father hardly ever talked about his own experiences during World War II. They, they basically,、um, I tell you, when we were growing up, when the kids were, when my brother and sister and I were growing up, it was,、uh, yeah, we were there and that's, that's the history. But moving forward,、um, you have to,、uh, there was a real push to assimilate and to,、um, Be the best in school that you could be. I think that they just wanted to put all that behind them. As each life of Japanese American students in the photo was disrupted by the war and the incarceration that followed, Harry's life was nothing but something he had planned for or hoped for. Harry's father lost his retail business because he had to leave everything behind before he went to the camp. Harry's oldest brother went to Japan before the war to start a business there, but could not come back to the US because of the war, and he died in Japan. Harry himself attended a couple of other universities after the war to earn credits, aiming to finish his degree, but he never could. After Harry was forced out from the University of Washington, he was sent to the Camp Minidoka. First, during the war, he and his wife, Mike's mother, were in the camp together. However, the couple were separated when Harry was enlisted in the military. 
Harry volunteered to serve in the U.S. military when the U.S. government changed their policy. Earlier in the war, Japanese Americans were categorized as enemy aliens and denied military service. While he was at the camp, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, the 442nd.、Uh, so he was in Italy for、um, part of world for the end of World War II. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team was a unit. Consisting of almost all Nisei soldiers fought in World War II. It is famous for their bravery. Their motto was Go for Broke. They are the most decorated unit in the U.S. military history of its size. At the same time, it was a racially segregated unit. Many of them volunteered while they were in the incarceration camps and were sent mainly to the European theater to fight in Italy, France, and Germany. While they were fighting in Europe, their families were in the incarceration camps behind barbed wire. So she was in the camp. This is the irony. She was in the camp, and my father was fighting for the U.S. in Italy. He was in the army, and、uh, obviously, he felt compelled to、uh, represent the United States in the army. But he never, never talked about reconciling. You know, the、um, he's in the army, but his wife is in the camp. <laughs> he never reconciled that with me. Nor, nor I'm sure maybe with his grandparents or with his parents or his siblings. There might have been some discussion, but it was, it was not something brought up much at all. E- even when I traveled, when I was in Italy, I was in Florence, and he was in Florence thirty years before me, or forty years before me, and he never talked about that. It was just pretty astounding to me that I was at the same place that he was at during the war, but he never discussed it at all. So it was just history that was behind him, and that's the way my parents looked at it. They they were pretty quiet about speaking about that part of their lives. Mike thinks it is a generational thing prevailing among the Nisei generation that they don't reminisce over their past but live today for a better tomorrow. Though he is fully aware that different people dealt with their lives. During and after the war, differently. I think that once again, the my parents' generation was all about assimilation. So even though this injustice occurred, they were still adamant about assimilation. And that was it. This generation was was pretty、um, pretty accepting of what happened to them. It really was. Yeah, that's that's my opinion of it. Now there were some that were that were、uh, you know outspoken about not going、um, or obeying the uh, the uh, executive order, but the majority of people I knew and their parents just basically, this is what we're told, follow what we're told, and they marched off to.、Um, To the camp.
basically their response was, well, we, 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 were to, we did what we were told to do, and they didn't question it. That was it. There was no question. It was just uh, follow the authority, and that's the way they were. That's what happened. I, I, I will tell you again, my parents were very, very adamant about us always fitting in, you know, and, and be, be a part of where you are now. So, you know, we were in Seattle and we were uh, growing up there. And so you need to be just like your neighbors and your friends. And so there was never, ever uh, questioning of, of, you know, what happened. It just, it happened and let's move past that. That's, that was their attitude. Whereas I do know that there were others that were quite radical about uh, not forgetting, you know, what happened in 1941. They, they haven't forgotten. They just basically don't speak about it. They just don't, didn't. And, and I, I really think that's the Japanese way. It really was, it really is. I would agree that it was the Japanese way. It was how older generations of Japanese people used to be too. Back in old days, people in Japan used to call an authority or a government okami, which literally means a higher being, and they were not supposed to be in defiance of the authority. There is also Japanese values that I often hear when Japanese American people in Seattle talk about as one that older generations of Japanese Americans shared, which is gaman. It means to endure hardships and not complain about it. Considering Harry having been born in 1920s to the Issei parents who had immigrated from Japan, it is not hard to imagine that there was still a strong presence of old Japanese values in Harry. Mike raises caution against following authority blindly. Oh, I would say that that uh, the biggest thing is is to. Um, be curious and ask questions. You know, I, th I think that um, following following authority is one thing, but if it runs counter to, you know, your basic, uh, how you are wired, ask questions about that. And that's the difference. I think that our parents were just basically wired to follow authority. And that's what happened. Erin's parents bought a house in Queen Anne, the north part of Seattle, in the 1960s. Erin grew up in this house that the family loved so much. She fondly remembers the bedroom she shared with her younger sister. Her mother painted its walls light green and sewed custom shades with a bright apple tree print. The neighborhood was not racially diverse back in time when Erin was growing up. But most of her family's activities were centered around her grandparents' houses, especially in her father's side of grandparents, Shigaki's, in the south end of Seattle. It was largely the community of Japanese Americans and Asian Americans. The Shigaki side 
had purchased a house in the 30s that was, you know, in the Central District, so just a little bit east of Rainier Avenue. And they were able to hold on to that house during the war due to the kindness of a friend, a, a white friend who collected rent from tenants and kind of kept an eye on things as much as she could. So they were very lucky that they mm-hmm. got to come back to that house. And that was that was really one of the, the central um, places of my childhood because the, the church was on the same street and the Japanese school was down the street. It was walking distance to Chinatown International District. It was it was just a very um, physical and uh, heart central place. Erin's childhood was full of Japanese culture thanks mainly to her grandmother, who was a principal at Seattle Japanese Language School, Seattle Nihongo Gakko. My, my dad's mom, Yasuko, was first a teacher at uh, Seattle Nihongo Gakko, and then she became the principal. So um, she, you know, was was one of those people who who didn't turn away from the culture after that war experience and in fact really embraced it and, and had the foresight to know, um, you know, that, that we should, we should preserve it even though this thing happened to us, even though we were racially targeted and incarcerated. Erin celebrated Hinamatsuri, a doll festival for girls and Obon, a summer event to welcome your ancestors' spirits coming home every year and ate rice gohan with chopsticks every day. Um, and so, yeah, we, we had a set of dolls that we put up at her house. We, you know, I think both my grandmothers and my mom cooked pretty even split between American and Japanese food, but we always had gohan. Always, always, always. Uh, and used ohashi. Um, you know, we we went to obon practice. We did all of these really delightful things that were, you know, still done in, in the community. Thank goodness, you know, thank goodness people kept these things going. Although she loved the house that she grew up in, living in the Queen Anne neighborhood, where she used to live with her parents as a kid, left deep scars in her heart. Sadness, loneliness, grief, pain, and frustration. So I think, you know, living in that community was challenging. I mean, there just weren't very many families of color, people didn't talk to us for a long time. Well, I was talking to my mom about this, a little while ago, she said that people didn't really talk to us for about 10 years. You know, there was no sort of friendly neighborhood um, welcome for a decade, which is, I I didn't realize that because I was just a kid, you know. Um, But I, I always, I always think about that. I think every Asian kid in this country has faced some kind of racial taunting. And, you know, to some extent that has continued um, 
into my adulthood, you know, not he- not back here in Seattle, but like certainly in Washington, D.C. and New York, um, you know, it's a racist country and people say things. Erin felt extremely lonely and disconnected by some of the racial discriminations that she experienced. But her painful experiences actually gave her a motivation and an energy at the same time to do something about it for herself, for her community, and for something bigger. Her pilgrimage to the Camp Minidoka was her turning point and awakening. The Minidoka pilgrimage started in 2003. The annual pilgrimage to the former site of the Camp Minidoka is to honor those who suffered the incarceration and also to share stories of the incarceration with younger generations and those who ever are willing to listen. You know, the first time I went on pilgrimage,、um, Before I started working with that group, I went with my parents, and it was the first time my dad had been back, and it was the first time my mom and I had set foot on that on that hallowed ground. And we had、um, a, a talk story circle. You know, we sort of broke into smaller groups to do some emotional processing. And I remember that I and another Yonsei person, we were just, we said, maybe for the first time, we just both admitted, God, we're so mad about this. We're so mad that this happened. And like, why didn't more people stand up? Why didn't more of us stand up? You know, there's just so many questions. And、um, it felt good to just to express that we were just furious about it.、Um, and then I think,、um, Underneath that fury is often grief, you know, a lot of sadness. So, just a very powerful mixture of emotions. And yeah, I, I do think that that's sort of the, what's been kind of, you know, stirring inside of me,、uh, looking for a place to go. And I'm, I'm very glad that、um, I've been able to make public art about this, this, this story. It's just, it's helped me. I think it's helped other people in my community to heal, you know, and, and now I would like to extend it out to the rest of, you know, what, what is really beloved community. It's not just our internal community, you know, it's supposed to be everyone, everyone that we're connected to. Um, you know, in, in the way that, that Dr. King talked about it, that concept of beloved community is, is really inclusive of, of everyone,、um, not just the people we get along with or, you know, we, we like. So, and, and I think that's a big, a big idea, a big, powerful idea. So she gave her Japanese American student mural in U District the name Respect Beloved Community to reflect her intention of creating a truly inclusive society, inspired by the concept of beloved community by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
there is such a deep-seated racism in this country that, of course, something like this could happen. And I, so I, I want people to know that um, that there are a lot of us, you know, in our community that are going to stand up against this kind of um, injustice and racial profiling, and. Again, to come back to the title, Respect Beloved Community, I I want to invite people into this broader idea of who, who we are as Americans or as members of society of the world. You know, we it's supposed to be an all-inclusive, the beloved community. Um, and until we can really have equal, you know, equal footing for everyone, then then we're not, we're not all fully liberated, you know, all, I feel like our liberation is really all tied together. Um, So I think, you know, I think that's, that's the focus of my work um, going forward is to really tie these specific Japanese American stories to those of other communities just to get away from the the ways that we've been put into separate boxes and categories and fighting for resources against each other. The art that I'm making right now is is about, you know, my personal journey, my healing, the healing um, that my community still needs to do. Um, and an offering that I am trying to make to other communities, you know, to, to understand how our stories are connected. So it's very grounded in, in trying to impart knowledge about my community that I love. Um, yeah. And I, I just feel, I feel really lucky that I, that I have a chance to, to do it, to make this work. So it's been a wonderful journey so far. Looking forward to where else it's going to take me. When I first stood in front of Erin's Japanese-American student mural, I felt uneasy, anxious, and even sad. I knew that all the smiling faces would soon be clouded and their lives would be at the mercy of the war that was about to break out, the war between their country and the country where their parents or grandparents came from, and I wondered how their lives and lives of people like them during and after the war were like. Many Japanese-American incarceration survivors did not talk much about their experiences, especially to their children generations, most of them sunsets. Even if they did, it took many years before they started talking about it, for many reasons. It can be pain, trauma, shame, assimilation, busy moving on, or mixture of all these and more. Also, talking about their painful experiences to their families could have been the most difficult. There is no easy answer. It is important to try and understand what made them hesitant to share their experiences, 
At the same time, though, it is equally important to think about what we can do now so that their experiences will not be wasted nor fade away. Their stories are meaningful and relevant, especially in today's world that is full of race based hate and discrimination. The question we should ask would be less about why they did not talk, but more about who can we ask, what do we know, and how can we best make use of the stories they told us. We can share their stories in a way that more people will become aware of what happened to the Japanese American community so that they will be inspired to take action to stop history from repeating itself to anyone. Fortunately, there are people who have started this effort. Some of them I had the privilege of interviewing with for this podcast. John Johnson, the owner of the Panama Hotel, Teresa Matrock, the history librarian of the University of Washington, and Erin Shigaki, the activist and artist in this episode. There is always something that we can do to join the effort. It is our responsibility to pass down the stories to future generations. So now, where do you want to start? Special thanks to Erin Shigaki and Mike Eguchi for sharing their stories. Music by Zakar Balaha. This concludes my podcast mini series Beyond Generations. Stay tuned for updates on bonus episodes. Join our community on Instagram at beyondgenerations.seattle for updates and extras. Thank you so much for listening. This is Monica. You have been listening to Beyond Generations. My journey of discovery will continue.